I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. This week, ahead of schedule, the second episode of Rosemary Hill's series on romantic history. Episode 3 will be out on the 12th of April. Next week, Tom Stevenson on sanctions, Russia and Ukraine. Hello. And welcome to the LRB podcast and the second episode in this four-part series of close readings looking at how history was transformed in the Romantic period. I'm Rosemary Hill. If you tuned in last week, you will have heard me talking to Tom Stammers about a huge row at Salisbury Cathedral in 1789 and how it transformed attitudes to the past, how it introduced a whole new idea about conservation. Today, we're bringing Scotland into the picture And to do that, I'm joined by Professor Colin Kidd of the University of St Andrews. He's a regular contributor to the LRB. Hello, Colin. Hello, Rosemary. Very glad to be with you. Well, thinking about romantic history and what it did to reinforce the union is quite a curious moment, I think, because romantic history made the Scots more pro-English, not least by making the English think that they were really Scottish. And the craze for all things Highland reached its absolute apogee in the middle of the 19th century. It began with Walter Scott, who we're going to talk about later, but I thought I'd like to just begin, if you like, right at the end, at that climax in the middle of the 19th century, when Queen Victoria and Prince Albert in 1848 bought the Balmoral Estate in Aberdeenshire. And what they bought was a real medieval castle, but in a way that was very typical of history in the Romantic period. Although it was old, it didn't really make them feel right about what they... It didn't give them the right feeling for what they wanted for their Highland home. And so over a period of time, with the help of the architect William Smith, they demolished all the historic parts and built the Balmoral that we know today, something more Gothic. And it's an interesting moment in all sorts of ways, I think, because one of the ways they funded this huge project was through the sale of the Brighton Pavilion, which had been George IV's palace at Brighton, which was built in this fabulous Oriental style, which now seemed... um, I think Queen Victoria still liked it quite, but to the Victorians it was a style that seemed decadent, fey, The new Victorian Balmorality was going to be grey and granite and solid and built in the highlands. So I know that we've now come outside your chronological comfort zone. So come in and tell me how we got here from 1745, when the Scots were invading England, Tartan is banned, to 1850, when the royal family are entrenched in the highlands and everyone's wearing tartan. What's going on in the middle? Uh, well, that, that's an excellent question, and I and I, I think I'd like to approach it backwards, um, as it, as as it were, because I think you've you've you, you've hit on a real issue in, in terms of changing tastes, and you've pointed to uh, changing tastes in 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 Scotland, in the form of um, move towards Baro- Scots baronial architecture in in the nineteenth century and towards the Gothic, but there's also changing English tastes, and in particular, what we see in, in 19th century England is a taste for Scotland. And the normal English response to Scotland is not to notice it at all. It's, it's, it's a kind of indifference. It's, it's somewhere up there. But as, as you say, Sir Walter Scott makes the English appreciate Scotland. And I think, I think what um, Victoria and Albert are doing in purchasing Balmoral, it's part of this this changing taste for Scotland. And I came across a very obscure novel from the 1820s, which I, I think deserves to be reprinted. It's, it's, um, I, it's not at all canonical. The author's Sarah Green, about whom I know, well, 
not so much nothing. Well, it's next to nothing or nothing. She describes herself as a Cockney. And the novel's entitled Scotch Novel Reading. And it's about a London girl called Alice Fennell, who's absolutely addicted to the latest fad. The latest fad is for Scottish novels, not only for Sir Walter Scott, but also for the Ettrick Shepherd. And she's absolutely devastated when she discovers that the Ettrick Shepherd's surname is Hogg. And although she's London-based, born and bred, she dresses up in, in ridiculous tartans, which, which when she's making her father's breakfast of um, liver and bacon, she says, you know, she, she puts on a cod Scottish accent and tells her father, oh, come on, have your haggis and, and, and so forth. And the only way her, her English suitor is able to get through to her is by dressing up in tartan himself and pretending to be a Captain Duncan MacGregor. It's a superb novel making fun of this Scottish mania of, of the 1820s. But it's, it's, it, what it encapsulates is this notion that by the 1820s, there's something different going on, that Scotland is now in vogue in a way that it wasn't before, if we then reach back to the to the Jacobite period. So, yeah, by 18... I must say, I haven't heard of Sarah Green either. She's obviously the Emma Bovary of... Uh, absolutely. Of heroine is the Emma Bovary of this uh, experience. So, by 1822, two years before George IV's triumphant visit to Scotland, this is all very entrenched, this mania for all things Scottish. And it goes back... I mean, after all, Boswell and Johnson talk about having a liking for the Jacobite cause, even though, you know, they recognise that it was treasonable... And this sort of sentimental Jacobitism has been warmed from a cinder to a flame in the intervening years, but mostly by Walter Scott. Yes, I mean, I think one can take this in phases, that certainly in the aftermath of the Jacobite rebellion in 1745-6, there's tremendous anti-Scottish hostility, and that continues. In fact, I would say, argued, becomes even stronger in the 1760s when... John Stuart, a most unfortunate surname, uh, third Earl of Butte, becomes the first Scottish Prime Minister. And certainly when the English negotiated their union of 1707 with Scotland, they certainly didn't intend it to mean a Scot becoming Prime Minister. And there's a huge outpouring of anti-Scottish invective during the 1760s, directed not only against Butte, but also against the... um, the Ossian phenomenon uh, of the time and against Scots and the make in London. And it's, it's there in poetry, squibs, satires, cartoons and continues into, into the 1770s. And I think what actually changes matters is, is the um, American War of Independence in the 1770s. Because during the American War of Independence, not only do we see Britain at war with the American colonists, but also Ireland asserting its um, standing within the Hanoverian dominions at this time. And Scotland is a loyal province. And I think it's that Scotch loyalty during the late 1770s and 1780s that I think contributes to towards a kind of a union of hearts and minds that really wasn't there in the first half of the 18th century. And that's why I think we have this remarkable phenomenon in the early 1790s when Boswell writes, I mean, completes his life of Johnson. We basically have a Scot retelling all of Johnson's favourite Scottish jokes. And when they were first made, they were made in a very different atmosphere in which there was a sort of political hostility towards the Scots. But, but by the early 1790s, as I say, it's, we, we have something very different. It's a, it's a Scot retelling an Englishman telling jokes about the Scots. And so I think we've, we've, we've entered uh, a new phase, the one that, that we're most familiar with, the, the world of the 19th century when Punch makes jokes about Scots. But there's a, there's a, a kind of affectionate stereotyping. Uh, it, it's become banter. And it has ceased to be hard-edged and political, as it was back in the 1760s. It's very interesting what you say about the effect of the American War of Independence, because I think last time Tom and I were talking about quite a lot about Horace Walpole and Walpole's view about the Gothic Revival and why the Gothic Revival happened, because as far as 
Walpole was concerned he was only dealing with his own taste, but he thought that the Gothic revival really came out of the loss of America um, and it provoked this great wave of nostalgia for, um, the, for the lost colonies and it made the English in particular start looking back on a time of more prosperity, more grandeur perhaps in the world. And I hadn't really thought about that in connection with Scotland. But of course, as you say, in Boswell and Johnson, in everything Boswell writes about Johnson, you see this internalising and reinvention of the relationship between the two men, but also between England and Scotland. And of course, Johnson never really admits anything being nice or good about the Scots. But you can just tell from his behaviour and from this enduring um, and warm friendship that somehow, somewhere, his name is being changed. But actually, the, the hostility to the Scots, the actual real Scots in London, Campbell of Isla, who is one of the Victorian Scottish antiquaries who, who wrote up or tried to write up the history of Tartan, but of course quickly ran into the sand because there wasn't really much evidence for it. But he recalls as a child, which would have been in the 1830s, coming to Scotland, to England, to London, with his brother and being in his kilt in Hyde Park and being thrown out by the park keeper. So I think a lot of residual anti-Scottishness persisted at ground level, like a kind of inert gas. At the same time, and of course that's what Scott is so good at in his novels, but his, the story of the Jacobites, the romantic Jacobites, they're all trying to overthrow the British state. Um, and he makes your, your feelings go in one direction with the Jacobites, while the argument of the plot, which is always that Scotland is better off in the Union rather than out, goes the other way. Yes, and, and of course Scott is writing in the aftermath of the French Revolution and, and I think that is vitally important because in the aftermath of the Revolution there's a desire to, to find, uh, to, to rediscover tradition, to find a, a kind of particularity that will be a bulwark against this sort of um, this unit, this craze for uniformity and levelling and so forth. And so, there's no doubt about it that there, there is a a conservative aspect to what Scott is is doing. Now, you're also right that Scott points in in two different directions. He, he's a he's a very very subtle writer. These days, of course, Scott is is un, the great unread. But I think he's also, when people do read him, he's the great misread because um, he's so artful in pointing the reader in the direction of local colour and romance that the reader is led to believe that, that Scott is a romantic. But underpinning his outwardly and obtrusively romantic narratives, there are very cynical plots and manoeuvres that, that undercut the grand vision. So, so Scott is, he's very, he's very deceptive indeed. I think he's an absolute master of the sleight of hand. And as you say, our problem with Scott now is that we think, well, he is, he is unread. So we think of the, um, the novels as rather kind of hammy in terms of historical fiction. And we completely underestimate the sophistication of this mind, which, as you say, I mean, Scott was a Tory, but he had deep roots in the Scottish Enlightenment. And once he'd got well and truly in with the Prince Regent, later George IV, our fat friend, as he refers to him in correspondence, he was able to, well, he was able, he explained to the king, who I don't think was necessarily a great reader or student of history, that in fact, of course, George IV had as much Stuart blood as, as anyone in line for the throne. And then, of course, persuaded him less realistically, perhaps, but more, more persuasively, that he could be a great Highland chieftain which appealed to George IV very much. So actually to merge in the admittedly enormous figure of George IV, these two ideas of independence and union, when he brought, or George IV decided finally that he would come to Scotland. And I mean, I think, could you say a bit about the, um, the precedents for English monarchs visiting Scotland, which were not particularly happy? Yes, so I, I, I guess there'd actually been very, very, well... Or, or rather, 
I'm not. I'm not sure. I want to say English monarchs. I, I think I want to say English-based monarchs. After after the Union of the Crowns in 1603, visiting Scotland, Charles the First, having a, a delayed a coronation in Scotland in, in, in 1633, and then after his downfall in the middle of the civil wars, uh, Charles the Second being crowned. In, in in Scotland in in, in 1651, but then the, 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 thereafter defeated by 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 Cromwell. So th there are really no precedents um, after after that. These kings had um, settled uh, in London, and like I mean, they they had become so English that they had come to ignore Scotland. Uh, and, and I guess this is something that's changing in the early 19th century. Partly, and partly I think um, we see the influence of, of the national tale, Maria Edgeworth educating the English in, on the state of Ireland, and again, Walter Scott educating the English on the state of Scotland. Well, it's another, cause it's another of those sort of twists in history, isn't it, that the union of the crowns in 1603, I mean, James, James VI and I, it's a Scottish king coming to England. And then, as you say, he, they, the Stuarts become so um, naturalised that they think that Scotland doesn't matter anymore. Um, and the English also think Ireland doesn't matter anymore. But at the time of, of George IV thinking about coming to Scotland, all his advisers were more edgy and more nervous about him going to Scotland than they were about him going to Ireland. They thought that would be a relatively smooth event to organise. Whereas with Scotland, with all these um, very unfortunate precedents, I mean, Charles I's visit had um, kicked off some of the rows that eventually led to the Civil War. So, yes, very difficult to manoeuvre. And it, it was really Scott, with all his inventions of all this series of events, the, the procession with the regalia, and then, of course, the great ball in the assembly rooms, which did more than anything else to create this idea of tartan and highland dress as a Scottish national costume, which it had never been before. I mean, nobody in Edinburgh would have been seen dead wearing it um, until George IV arrived, when everyone kind of realised that it was an absolutely marvellous idea um, and they were all going to wear it. Yeah, so I, I think... I think um... What Walter Scott in his choreography of George the Fourth's visit is, um, to some extent, the Busby Barclay uh, of of uh, modern Scottish history, effectively um, inventing uh, a very complex tradition that uh, more or less as he as he went along, and it, it's a complex story because, as you say, although tartan had been around. And and the the plaid uh, had had been around. The kilt is new. The notion that clans are associated with particular tartans. Well, that was that was phenomenally uh, new in the early nineteenth century. And the in eighteen fifteen, the Highland Society of London contacted various clan chiefs to see well, what is your clan tartan. They had they had no idea there was no such no such thing, and they wrote off to. William Wilson and Sons of Bannockburn, uh, the, the the manufacturers of, of of tartan, to ask their advice. And of course, this was a splendid way for the cloth manufacturers to to sell more uh, more more cloth, to develop new designs, to as it were develop niche markets for for particular sets and and and, and designs. So there's a large element of commercialization running alongside the same phenomenon of the, in, the this invention of tradition that Scott is involved with well yes I mean it was I mean, it was very Busby Barclay not least in the fact that of course George IV famously wore pink tights under his kilt and possibly because the king expanded even while it was being made the kilt was quite short by the time he arrived, causing a certain amount of embarrassment. And one lady is supposed to have said, no, really not at all. The more we can see of your majesty, the better. But I think they weren't quite expecting to see so much leg. But so there was, there was that side of it. But also this rumbling idea, and there was a huge commercial side. One of the reasons that, that, that all this revivalism was so, good, was so widely accepted was that it, was, it made money. But Scott, where Scott drew the line, and I think this is one of the very interesting things about Scott and 
I mean, people talk about the invention of tradition. Well, all traditions are invented. They don't occur spontaneously in nature. What's interesting is what gets taken up and what gets left and where Scott was prepared to draw the line. I mean, he was quite prepared to invent the order of archers and put them in Lincoln Green, give them bows and arrows. I mean, that was all... It was. Just, he just took a local dining club and turned them into that. But there were other things he wasn't prepared to accept. And he was not prepared to accept this idea, either that Tartan had been the ordinary dress of the lowlands, or that there were such things as clan Tartans individually associated with individual names. And we know that he wasn't prepared to accept that because it comes up when his he became aware of the two brothers, the, the Allen brothers, who became known as the Sobieski Stuarts, and their plans to publish a book. Yes. Now, I think the the fascinating thing about, about Scott is that everybody focuses, as you say, on this process of Celtification, on the, um, the emphasis on a Highland tradition. Of course, by this stage, Scotland, or rather Lowland Scotland, was the fastest urbanising society in 18th century Europe. And so what we have by the era of Scott is a, a kind of lopsided nation in, wh which essentially inhabits the, the cities of the central belt of the, of the Scottish lowlands. And yet at the same time, we see this emphasis on the bit of Scotland that doesn't really belong to commercial and industrial modernity. But Scott is acutely aware of this. And, of course, in Scott's novels, well, of course, as I say, Scott is so unread that people almost automatically assume that Scott is either writing about his native borders or he's writing about the Highlands. But that's those aspects uh, of, the, of Scott's oeuvre, they're only a fraction of what he writes about. And Scott, Scott writes about Scotland as a whole. And, in fact, I think he is the great novelist of the regional diversity of Scotland, of, of the Solway first area in, in Red Gauntlet, of um, the central lowlands in, uh, in Old Mortality, of, of, of the Trossachs in, in, in Rob Roy, of the eastern seaboard in, in The Antiquary, of uh, Shetland in, in, in The Pirate. Scott captures the diversity of Scotland in his work, but subsequent um, historians in particular, partly I think through not having engaged with Scott's novels uh, uh, in, in their completeness, they have ignored those aspects of, 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 Scotland, of Scott's, as it were, exploration of Scotland that don't fit this, this image of, of Highlandism. Well, it serves him right in a way, of course, because he's manipulating history and now he's been manipulated in his turn. But I think, I mean, of course, you're absolutely right. And it reflects the fact that Scott began his life, his grown-up life, as, as an antiquary. And he was a great collector of ballads. He was a great... I mean, one of the things about the antiquaries is that they are the first oral historians. And Scott was was typical in this and that he listened... I mean, as a child, it was from his father's friend that he heard about the 15 and the 45 and it imbibed this very romantic idea of the Jacobites, but sitting, listening to older and ultimately very old people talking about their memories and noticing their different dialects and dialect words. I mean, he was very sensitive to all of that. And, I mean, he was also quite prepared to rewrite ballads if, if they... They fitted better in what he wanted, but he was deep. He was deeply aware, as you exactly as you say, of all those regional differences and subtleties, and that, of course, was what made him so persuasive to the Scots. At the same time, as this very broad popular appeal made him acceptable not only to the English but to the French, and indeed to the Russians who read Scott. In, mostly in French translation, but it has been calculated that by the end, by the middle of the nineteenth century, something like eighty percent of people who were literate had read something by Scott in some language. I mean, he was famous in a way that we can hardly imagine now. Yes, I mean, I'd like to pick up that point you made about Scott and his addiction to oral history, because I think it it comes through uh, best and 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 very comically uh, 
in fact, in in his novel The Antiquary, which to, which to some extent is the one that has the, the closest bearing on your own book. And in, in The Antiquary, Scott has, has various characters who represent certain different um, approaches to the Scottish past. He has Sir Arthur Warder, who is a kind of elderly, sentimental Jacobite, concerned about the long lineage of Scottish kings going back to the mythical Fergus MacFerquard back in supposedly 330 BC. He's got the antiquary himself, uh, Jonathan Oldbuck, who is uh, a caricature of John Pinkerton. Pinkerton, uh, a late 18th century, early 19th century Scots antiquary, who thought that the indigenous inhabitants of Scotland, the Picts, were not as they, they really were, um, a Celtic people, a pre-Celtic people, a bit like the Welsh, but were in fact a Gothic people who shared some, uh, as it were, ethnic kindred with the, with the Anglo-Saxons. He's also got Hector McIntyre, who promotes Ossian. And what um, Scott does is he shows that all these antiquarians, they basically, they have their own particular fantasies and hobby horses that they ride. But the person who actually knows the past the best is the local beggar, Eddie Ochiltree, who has actually been wandering around the area and actually knows what he sees. So that when Oldbuck spots what he thinks of is, a, is a, an ancient Roman temple at the Came of Kinprunes, He's actually exposed by Eddie Ochiltree, who says, oh, well, uh, I don't think it's a Roman temple because I remember the building of it in his, in his sort of um, itinerant uh, life. And so what you have with Scott, although he's, a, he, though he's very conservative, he's someone who, who believes in, uh, as it were, an organic society. He's a paternalist and he, he tries to integrate all classes in, into his, as it were, romantic synthesis of uh, Scottish life. I think, yes, and I mean, The Antiquary is, well, obviously to you and me, it's an extremely important novel, but it is a much more important novel um, than people realise today. Because, as you say, he's got all those different approaches to the past. Arthur Wardour, whose name, I think, is not coincidentally related to Wardour Street in Soho, which is where all the... Um, what they called sophisticated furniture, i.e. furniture made up from bits of old furniture and bits of new furniture, and Arthur Wardour's learning, which is neither particularly deep nor particularly accurate, as Scott says, um, is that kind of antiquary. There's Old Buck, who is Pinkerton, but also, I mean, it's also a caricature of Scott himself. I mean, he's put himself into the novel in, to some extent. And it's not people always think of Scott mostly think of Scott as a as an historical novelist but of course the antiquary is not an, an historical novel it's set in the very recent past it's sent during the French Revolution it covers a very short space of time which embraces uh, Thermidor and the fall of Robespierre which is not mentioned except it's referred to in passing but of course you know they're in Scotland they're far away from all of this and as you say um, Eddie Ockeltree who holds the living tradition which has not been destroyed and disrupted. He is the carrier of the past within the present. And it's really a novel about how we experience the past in the present. And in that way, well, to come back to the same old point, really, that Scott is a thinker of immense subtlety and variety. Yes, and I think I mean, Scott engages with both traditions in Scotland. The one that we've talked about, the, the Jacobite tradition associated with with the Highlands and with Scottish Episcopalianism. But he also engages with what you might call the Whig Presbyterian covenanting tradition, exploring the development of the Presbyterian tradition, both in old mortality and in its mellower version, heart, heart, the heart of Midlothian. So Scott is playing with two... Uh, Scott is aware that there are two different traditions that Scots can refer back to, the royalist Episcopalian tradition or the more democratic, radical, Presbyterian tradition. But he's also conscious of rest theme. There are themes of restoration 
and legitimacy that run through his work. So, so when Scott is writing, say, in Waverley about the Jacobite rebellion of 1745, he's writing ostensibly about that period. But you can never forget that for his readers, and he's, he's writing, I mean, Waverley's published in 1814, so writing right at the end of the Napoleonic era, uh, Scott ha has lived through 20-odd years of, of warfare throughout the French Revolutionary and then the Napoleonic Wars. And Scott is keenly interested in uh, themes of how rightful authority is, is restored, how legitimate authority can be maintained or, or re-established after moments of crisis and fracture and, and disruption. The other thing I think that we, that we miss in Scott, you, you, you mentioned, as it were, the, the caricature of Scott himself. And I, I wonder how often he does caricature himself in his novels, because almost all of them feature some deeply quixotic character. And, and by the way, I think, I think um, uh, Don Quixote is an enormous influence on on Scott's writing. I guess Don Quixote not normally associated with romanticism, but what Scott does is he populates his novels with, with figures who are partly Don Quixote, partly Scott himself. Not only Jonathan Oldbuck, the antiquary in, in, in the novel of that name, but there's the Triptolemus Yellowly, who's an, an, an agrarian improver in The Pirate, which is set in, 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 in Shetland. And Triptolemus Yellowly thinks he, he's absolutely obsessed with the classics and has read Virgil's, Georgics and various other classical authors who, who, who write about agrarian matters and thinks that somehow he can improve the, the agricultural state of, of Shetland by, by utilising the insights of ancient Roman authors on agriculture. Or there's Baron Bradwardine in, in Waverley uh, itself who is, is obsessed with, with Livy or... Bartholomew Saddletrees in Heart of Midlothian, who's absolutely obsessed with Romano-canonical Romano jurisprudence. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. If you're enjoying this series, you might like to read the many pieces by Rosemary Hill in the LRB archive. Subscribe to the London Review of Books today to save 79% off the cover price and get a free tote bag. Just go to lrb.me forward slash history that's lrb.me forward slash history, or click on the link below. This offer is only available for a limited time. I'm Samantha Rosehill. This is Hannah Arendt Between Worlds, a new podcast for thinking with and against Hannah Arendt. Hannah Arendt. Oh, Hannah Arendt. With Hannah Arendt. Join me and my guest as we address the most pressing political questions of our time, from love and friendship to loneliness and totalitarianism. Hannah Arendt Between Worlds is now available from the Goethe Institute and Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. It's interesting that you say that about Don Quixote, because actually, of course, Don Quixote is the first antiquary in literature, and, and he's the hero of what some sometimes you can never say anything is the first, but arguably the first novel. But he was a quintessential hero for all the romantics. I mean, Hazlitt says that thing about you know who is there who does not feel him for a brother. But I want to like to come back to more specifically Scott and the tradition. Of Scotland, and because uh, I'm, I'm very interested in this question of authenticity, which is central to the way the Romantics looked at history, so that um, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert feel quite comfortable demolishing an historic building, a 15th century building, in order to build something that feels more right. And Scott himself, because Old Buck's house, Monk Barnes, is built on land that has been taken from the church at the Reformation. Scott's own house, Abbotsford, um, in fact, was a farmhouse and had never been, never belonged to the church. And when he bought it, it was called Cartley Hole Farm, which is not very romantic. And it was known locally as Clarty Hole, which means Dirty Hole, which was even less romantic. So he just renamed it Abbotsford to give it an imaginary connection 
with the past, and that was good enough. That was you felt it, you believed it. That was enough. But there were points at which he drew the line, and that's where I'd like to come back to the whole thing about Tartan and these two young men, the Allen brothers, who turned up in Scotland with Robert Watson and said that they were implied, and I think at times even said, that they were the legitimate grandsons of Bonnie Prince Charlie. And Scott seems to have been perfectly okay with them just wandering around appearing in the drawing rooms of Edinburgh. But when he heard that they had this manuscript, the Vestiarium Scoticum, as it was called in very bad language, um, I mean, bad Latin, which purported to be an um, an 18th century history of Tartan going right back to the beginning and explaining that that Tartan had once been the dress of the whole of Scotland and that individual families had individual clan Tartans, as you were saying earlier, this idea which had been around, but they were proposing to have um, an authentication for it, um, a source. And Scott, at that moment, puts the brakes on and says, no, 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 no. I mean, you, you, if you can prove this, then OK. But he's not happy to go that far. Absolutely. So just just as um, Scott wasn't prepared to accept Ossian, for, for example, he's not prepared to accept the, the authenticity of this manuscript, though... The person who really uh, demolishes it is um, a professor of law at Glasgow called called George Skeen, who, after the this this document, the Vestiarium Scoticum, is published in the mid eighteen forties, writes a, a lengthy piece in uh, I think it's the Quarterly Review, exposing this this work, which purportedly was written by a Sir Richard Urquhart in the in the early sixteenth century. What Skeen shows is that, yes, it, it, it just doesn't fit because at that stage, uh, and Urquhart's supposed to be a lowlander, um, Scottish lowlanders were quite violently kind of Celtophobic and Highlandphobic and ve- ve- very hostile uh, towards the culture, values and manners of the Highlands. It just, the document just just didn't uh, d- didn't ring true, and 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 Skeen goes into considerable detail exposing exposing the forgery. But of course, the point about that is that by then it was far too late, because the the brothers, the Allen brothers, seem to have backed off when Scott made it clear that if he was he was prepared to look at any original material, but of course they didn't have any original material, so um, it all went away. Then Scott died. Then, of course, in 1842, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert make their first visit to Scotland, which is, I mean, it makes George IV's visit look like nothing. Twenty years later, they've got fireworks, they've got cannons, everyone's in kilts and tartan, and they have this incredible reception at Taymouth Castle with a Bredalbum home, which was, again, a genuine historic house, which, by the time the Bredalbums got inherited it it didn't look nearly old enough for early victorian taste so they had pugin in they gothicked it up like nobody's business and they staged this great pageant when victoria arrived she writes about it rhapsodically in her diary and by no coincidence at all it was in 1842 with scott safely dead the queen on her way that the Allen brothers published the Vestiarium Scoticum. The Bredalbans, of course, bought a copy, put it in their new Gothic library built by Pugin. Queen Victoria made that room her private sitting room. She was very pleased with the Vestiarium. She doesn't seem to have been very bothered by the fact that the authors claimed that they were the rightful heirs to the throne which she occupied. So she got a copy for the Royal Library at Windsor. The Scottish press were full of admiration for John Sobieski-Stewart and his publication. And um, and then that leads on to the purchase of Balmoral and so on and so on and so on. But it wasn't, I mean, it was the, the brothers' novel, Tales of the Century, in which they made their claims to the throne public, um, actually triggered Skeen's response. And of course, he totally demolished it. And But it made no difference because by that stage, Everyone loved it. It was perfect for the Victorians because they wanted something which was romantic and highland, but they also were very keen on the domestic, so they liked the idea of families, and they liked the idea of a system. 
And so the system, because you will still meet people who tell you that, you know, they're not entitled to wear this or you're entitled to wear that, which was all made up. But it was so good for the economy. And it really, I mean, Scotland's Forged Tartans was published in 1980. And that finally, finally, you would have thought, put the last nail in the coffin. made no difference at all. No, no difference at all. So, so what we're dealing with here is it's, it, it's a period of transition for Scotland's identity. And so many of the key features that we now think of as, as part of Scotland's great historical tradition, whether it be things like, like Burns suppers and the whole Burns cult, well, that only, that only dates from the 19th century. Burns lived between 1759 and 96. Sir Walter Scott changes things with his Waverley novels that are only published from 1814 onwards. And similarly, this tartan phenomenon only comes really from, well, from about the 1815, possibly the 1820s. And then again, as you say, with the, with the, with the 1840s as well. And, and so what we had before that was totally different. And you mentioned demolition. Well, there had been a demolition job uh, a century before when Father Thomas Innes, who's one of the... I was actually mentioned in Scott's The Antiquary. Father Thomas Innes, in a, a critical essay published in 1729, he exposed Scotland's historic myth, which was the one that prevailed throughout the late medieval and early modern periods, which was a, a myth of Scotland's ancient foundation in 330 BC and of a succession of kings from a, a mythical but believed first king Fergus MacFerquard in 330 BC to the present. And in fact, if you if you we could move here from Balmoral to Holyrood House, because in Holyrood House, in, in, in the gallery, you can see there how the Ju Dutch artist Jacob de Vett, as it were, interpreted a commission from Charles II to depict his ancestors going all the way back to this Fergus MacFerquard, and at least 40 of these kings who are depicted on the walls never existed. And de Vett managed to solve the problem of how you depict these for whom we don't, we don't, we not only do not have a likeness, they never existed at all. And so the answer was to give them all Charles II's nose. <laughs> very, very good and very tactful decision. But OK, Colin, well, then we have to say... Does it matter? When you talk about exposing a myth, um, that's to sort of imply that, that myths should be exposed, should be outed, should be kind of done away with. Is that what you think? I mean, or do we just accept that how we experience, that maybe in some ways the romantics were more realistic because they accepted that a lot of what you mean by history depends on your own feelings and your own circumstances and what you know and don't know and what you see, which has got understood so well, what you actually see with your own eyes, rather than what um, an academic historian might regard as a fact, though one might also think that academic historians have a fairly rich track record of factual selection and interpretation. I mean, all facts have to be interpreted, otherwise they're useless. Well, I think I would turn this back to your subject of, of, of the antiquaries, because I think what we see with the antiquarian phenomenon is we see a diversity of, of responses. We see both an interest in material culture and artefacts, but we also see an interest in philology and language and so forth. And at the same time, we see two different approaches to the past that we see, well, in fact, we see two. In fact, sometimes we see them intertwined together in a hybrid form. We see both antiquarians, as it were, promoting what are in effect historical fantasies. They're promoting myths. They're riding their hobby horses. But we also see antiquaries engaged in sort of technical scholarship, exposing myths and fabrication. But we also see both of these things happening together. And if I revert to that figure, Father Innes, in the, in the 1720s, that although he destroys an ancient myth of a long line of Scottish kings, that is, Scottish as in the, the Dalriadic Scots of the West Highlands. Although he destroys that myth, he tries to replace that myth, quite unsuccessfully and without much influence, with 
a myth, an equally fallacious myth of a long line of Pictish kings going back into the dim and distant past. And so what, what you get with Innes is this antiquary actually showing quite exquisite scholarly technique in exposing one myth and then somewhat, well, gullibly, perhaps, or perhaps craftily trying to promote a second myth that has no more foundation than the one that he's promoted. And I guess what is fascinating about antiquaries is this interplay between the scholarly deconstruction and the mythical fabrication. I think I, w I would completely agree with you about antiquaries. I would also say that that is not unknown among academic historians. But it does, um, in fact, I think it's, it's all, I mean, I, I do think that this is to do with the way that people behave and the way that they understand their own experience within time. And I think the idea of uh, trying to invent a myth and then it doesn't take off, it comes back to this idea of the invention of tradition, that you can't actually invent one because you need enough people to feel it to be even if they don't believe it to be literally true, to feel it to be in some way valid. Um, otherwise, it will never take off. It will just be this great lead balloon of, you know, your idea about the Picts and everyone thinks, well, fine, but so what really? And so I think that the ballast which is given to, whether, as I say, it's um, a Marxist interpretation of history, which is, uh, for my money, as much dependent on a myth and a kind of teleological idea as anything the antiquaries did. So I come back to my my claim that the, the, the romantic historians were more realistic. They knew that you would never have any, that you would never have this thing, which was an objective factual history. Because even if you have a history which is only facts, you're still selecting the facts. I mean, we're seeing now, one of the things that was happening in the Romantic period is that people were starting to look at different kinds of history. They were starting to look outside beyond just kings, politicians, wars and economy. They were looking at the history of ordinary people, of everyday life, um, and as we said before, of oral history. And now we look we're looking, we've looked in the last 100 years, certainly in the last 50 years, we've looked a lot more at, say, women's history, which for a long time everyone said, well, you can't do women's history, there isn't any material. And of course, when you start looking, there is. Um, and we're now looking at all sorts of histories these days, which were not, they were not suppressed, but they were simply not studied. And so the picture that was produced even by the most scrupulous of historians was, in fact, distorted according to their own, according to the questions they'd asked. Well, yes. I mean, and again, if we revert to Scott, he's an, he's an incredibly subtle and potentially subversive figure. And as we've said, as well as as it were drawing on on the, the past and and literary models like uh, Don, Don Quixote, he's also strikingly modern as well. And 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 certainly, he he's involved in a a very significant departure in in history away from a focus on, as it were, kings and leaders and battles. They're, they're all part of his story, but he's just as interested in in his Sancho Panza figures like like Eddie Eddie Ochiltree, that he's, he's he's interested in the speech of ordinary people, in the artifacts and lifestyles that they have, and that he is to to, to some extent a great promoter of a turn towards social history. Yes, well, the antiquaries had been going in that direction for a very long time, and it begins... I mean, I think it's very poignant the way that um, Gray's Elegy, one of the great kind of ur-romantic poems, talks about um, the mute and glorious Miltons, the unknown dead. There they all are. They probably lived very interesting lives. They had wonderful talents, but they were born to bloom unseen. Nobody could possibly find out about them. And within a generation, people are saying, well, yes, you can find out about them. And people were beginning to look again at medieval tombs, which tell you um, not only a lot of written information, but you can see how figures are dressed on those tombs. If you look at manuscripts, um, illuminated manuscripts, you can see the furniture, you can see the food. And the other thing which the antiquaries were very good at and had really got on top of by the time Scott was beginning his own researches was this idea which people still have that the Middle Ages were all black and white. Um, I don't know why they think that. I suppose because so many things have been, um, so many buildings have been scrubbed of colour. 
But Strutt, who, Joseph Strutt, who wrote the first important history of costume, used illuminated manuscripts. And he says, you know, it wasn't all black and white and bare stone floors. They had wonderfully coloured tapestries. Buildings were painted in bright colours. This was a rich, vivid world. And that, of course, was one of the things which got, especially during... 25 years of war when people couldn't travel on the continent and they started to look around at the ruins of the monasteries and began to see it was as if all the unknown dead of, of the of the country churchyard at Stoke Pages they'd come to life and they would got their clothes on and then Strutt wrote the most wonderful book of sports and pastimes and he makes a very good point that if you only call if you write a history that only concentrates on war and politics and kings you will always see people acting under stress in extreme situations. And if you want to know what they were really like, study what they did in normal times. How did they play? How did they live with one another? What were their families like? That will tell you far more about the truth of the society rather than, um, as I say, these extreme situations. Of course, things had changed in the 18th century and Scott is, to a large extent, the heir of the Scottish Enlightenment. And the Scottish Enlightenment, I mean... We're not just thinking of um, figures like Hume, Adam Smith, Will, the historian William Robertson, the early sort of social scientists, if you like, John Miller and Adam Ferguson. They turned away from a focus on elites and uh, political events to try to study structures. And they were particularly interested in the way that uh, laws and social structures and systems of property and so forth um, developed and, and and Scott is the heir of that and throughout his novels you do see not just sort of the clashes between religions or the clashes between ethnic groups but you also see uh, as it were the friction that occurs when two different kinds of social system I sort of let's say a clan-based social system runs up against a, a law-based uh, social system and Scott is very interested in the way that that these systems collide but the Scottish Enlightenment uh, did this in a somewhat dry way. It focused on, I mean, by moving away from politics, it did so in such a way that it focused on laws and economics and social structures, but it didn't bring the, the particularity of everyday life into the story. And that, I think, is, is where Scott enhances the legacy of the Scottish Enlightenment. He takes that story of law and social structure and so forth, and he adds the antiquarian fascination with the particular, with the material objects, with the dress and the customs of, of, of people as individuals, not simply as, uh, as it were, hostages to a social system. Well, I think... You uh, Yes, we've covered an awful lot of ground and the ground that takes us from the first Jacobite rebellion through the second, through the American Revolution, through the French Revolution, through the comedies and comedy in the broadest sense of Scott's fiction, the way that he bewitched the whole of the continent with all these stories of the Middle Ages, of Scotland, and this very broad tapestry, but also, as you say, in fact, deeply rooted, not only in an Enlightenment philosophy, but in a deep um, antiquarian knowledge of, of Scotland in, in all its richness and all its variety. And therefore, the scene was set, um, it's not perhaps completely understood for the Hanoverian Victoria and her German cousin Albert to come and build their granite fantasy in Aberdeen. So, Colin, thank you very much. That was wonderful. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Next time, I'll be talking to Rosemary Sweet and between us, we'll be unpicking the Bayer tapestry. Thank you for listening. This series was inspired by Rosemary Hill's book, Time's Witness. To buy a copy from the London Review Bookshop, just go to lrb.me forward slash hill or click on the link below.